Uh, seven times in the New Testament, Jewish Christian writers who came to know Christ uh, directly identify Jesus uh, as the one who fulfilled the role of the, the, of the suffering servant. So I'm going to show you a couple of charts. Uh, chart number one uh, details the seven places in the New Testament, uh, and the LXX means the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Um, so the, these are the seven places in the New Testament that are direct quotes from Isaiah 53. So you have to ask yourself the question, why did these Jewish Christians, these, these great... Uh, the saints who paid for their faith with their lives, uh, why, why did they directly quote Isaiah 53? Well, it's because they saw Christ, and they realized that Jesus was indeed the Messiah to come, so they made a one-to-one -one correlation between what was prophesied 800 years before he came, uh, and, the, and this is him. Uh, now, when they weren't directly quoting him, uh, I'll show you another chart. This is not exhaustive, because I only have 30 minutes, remember? Uh, so this is just a small chart of when they weren't directly quoting him, they were alluding to him. So uh, you could go through the gospel books, uh, and I've listed them there, uh, and these are the various quotes that are, uh, have the same type of wording, and we know they're quoting from Isaiah 53 based on what they say. So if they weren't directly quoting him, they took their words and they alluded to Isaiah 53. Again, why did they do this? They were absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Messiah as prophesied. They looked at the evidence. It leads to a simple question. Have you looked at the evidence? Or have you made a miscalculation as to who Jesus is? Because this is, uh, this is the question of all of life, is who is Jesus? Because if he truly was the suffering servant who paid the penalty for our sins, if he truly did historically rise from the grave in time and space, that changes everything, everything. So as we look at this chapter, um, review is a wonderful thing, as I've said many times before. Um, because we do tend to forget things, and so we want to review. And I told you, and I, I'm going to deliver on my promise, I'm going to keep the same main idea through this, this whole series. Uh, and so uh, if you are wondering what the main idea is, here, let's review what it is. What is Isaiah talking about uh, concerning this prophecy? He's going to tell you that the salvation of a, of a sinner is grounded in the servant's degradation and exaltation. That's the main motif of the whole prophecy from chapter 52, verse 12, uh, through the end of uh, chapter 53, uh, verse 12. And so you, you have this, uh, this amazing story. I've called it the rags to riches story. The rags will be the degradation of the Christ, prophesied that he will come uh, and experience great degradation. Uh, but then the exaltation, uh, you will find that when you get to chapter uh, 53, verse 12, you'll see his glorious exaltation as the Messiah. So we're in that, uh, that Passion Week. Uh, Palm Sunday, as you're looking at, he's heading into degradation 2,000 years ago. But that degradation is going to lead to exaltation. All of that was prophesied to the letter. And again, as you think about these things, in case I forget to mention it, Christ could not control these events that we're going to talk about. That'd be one thing to control all these events to say, I fulfilled all of that. Uh, Christ could not control these prophecies as we're going to see. And in case you're a mathematician, I'll give you some uh, mathematical statistics later uh, to show you who Christ is. So we want to review uh, what we talked about last week um, of the movements of the passage. For, uh, verses uh, 13 to 15 of chapter 52 introduce us to the mystery of the servant. He's the servant. Yeah, his name is Jesus. Um, and that mystery is, uh, is a, basically a snapshot of the entire prophecy of, of Isaiah 53. So the, the mystery is God's going to leave his throne. He's going to take upon the form of a servant. Uh, he's going to go to the cross for us. He's going to bear our sin. Uh, and he, after he bears our sin, uh, he's going to be elevated to a place of great glory. 
And that's where he is today, seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the, that's the mystery. Why in the world would God do that? So if you've ever wondered if God loved you, the answer is yes, unequivocally. Yes, he loves you. If you've ever wondered, why would he want a relationship with, with the likes of someone like me? I mean, he has no idea. I mean, look at all that I've done in my life. Surely he who is holy wouldn't want to know me. Uh, if you've ever wondered, does he love you? Yes. Does he want a relationship with you? Yes. But you have to come to him on his terms. His terms are the servant. You must come by way of faith in the servant. So we want to add to that mystery by getting into the actual prophecy uh, component, uh, digging deeper into it. Verses 1 to 3 introduce us to what I would call uh, is the rejection of the servant. So it is prophesied that when the Messiah comes, uh, he will be rejected by the people. So the Old Testament did indeed prophesy that when the Messiah would come, he would reign supremely. So the Jews typically understood those passages and really were excited about that because they had many oppressors, whether it was the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, pick an enemy. They were persecuted as a people. So they loved passages like Daniel 2, 26 to 45, Zechariah chapters 12 to 14, that prophesied the coming of the Messiah with great power in the angelic armies, wouldn't you? But that's not what they got. And they like, we, are, we tend to do, you, you, there's certain parts of the Bible you really like, and there's other parts you kind of tend to overlook. Uh, and so they, they knew this, but they didn't pay much attention to Isaiah 53 because it, it well, it gave them a, a Messiah they really didn't want to identify with. So it says in verse 1 about the rejection of the Messiah, it's prophesied that they would reject him. Uh, it says in verse 1, there's a question, uh, like the, the nation is speaking uh, 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 this is like Isaiah speaking to the, to the nation. He says, who has believed our message about the Messiah? Uh, and to whom has, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He said, basically, the answer to the question is, when we revealed the evidence that uh, Jesus is the Messiah, uh, who believed that message? Not many. Not many did. Remember, Jesus said, the way to destruction is a wide road, and many are on it. The path to life is a narrow path, and fewer on that one. Uh, when you get to the book of John, chapter uh, 12, verse 37, it's one of those direct references uh, where you will see uh, how this is applied. It says, but though that he had performed, uh, speaking of the Messiah, so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. So the whole notion that, well, if I, 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 if I could just see an outright miracle, I would absolutely drop my atheism, agnosticism, whatever, and I would totally believe in Jesus. Well, he showed them signs and what they do. Now, show us something bigger, more spectacular. Uh, now, this all happened that the word of the Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled. And what did Isaiah prophesy? Lord, who's believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is, um, it's speaking of the power of God. So it's not like God has arms. So this is like an anthropomorphic, uh, anthropos is the Greek word for man. So it's like a putting human characteristics on God. So if you, your first day in heaven, if you're looking for God with a mighty, you know, bicep and everything, I'm just saying, think again. Because the Lord, who's, who's believed our report about the coming of the Messiah? Uh, and, it was, and he was showcased by your great power. Well, they saw miracles and they really didn't believe that it was him. Shocking. Uh, the Messiah came and the people turned away from him. When you think about the Old Testament, uh, you, can, uh, you can catalog many of the great prophecies from the Old Testament where the arm of the Lord was showcased, right? Like parting of the Red Sea, probably the greatest one. I mean, if you can part water hundreds of feet deep and hold the water back and make the land instantly dry and make it fall on the Egyptian army when they get to the other side, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Um, 
I mean, if you could put, you know, three Jewish young men in a fiery furnace that burns the guard throwing them in there to death, but they don't even come out with a smell of smoke. I can't even make a fire in my fireplace and not come away not smelling like smoke. They're in the fire and don't get consumed to come out. I mean, when you think about biblical history, did God show his arm to his people? The answer is yes, he did. Not all the time, uh, but he did. And they had many instances uh, of uh, seeing the arm of the Lord. And so they said when the Messiah comes, he's going to show the power of God, because he's God, he's the God man. But basically, people will look at his signs and yawn at the proofs. I think it was uh, Isaiah said, uh, man's heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, he came. Now, you think about the things that Jesus did when he walked to the earth. Uh, John chapter 9, I love John chapter 9. Uh, Jesus takes a, a young man that has been blind, uh, and he takes this young man blind from birth. Everybody knew he was blind, uh, and he gives him new eyes. I mean, I don't know if you've ever known a blind person. I have. Uh, and imagine the day that, that that person that you grew up that had no eyesight, you met them and they had eyesight. I mean, imagine, this is what happened to this young man. He gets new eyes in John chapter 9, uh, and all the Pharisees can do, and they know who the young guy is. They bring his parents in for questioning. They bring, bring him in for questioning. What happened to you? I don't know. Jesus came, you know, did his thing, gave me new eyes, you know. He brought his parents in. They said, well, don't ask us, ask our son. It's, a, it's an interesting passage. But you would think that if you could give somebody brand new eyesight, you must be the God who created eyesight. What were the Pharisees worried about? Well, he did this on Shabbat. What is Shabbat? Sabbath. He did, it on the, oh, he did it on the Sabbath. What does that mean? He was working. How dare he work and break Shabbat? I've been in Israel many times. I'm just here to tell you, on Shabbat, everything stops. If you, I mean, you want to make sure you get everything that you need to get done, done before Friday evening when Shabbat starts because... All the food at the hotel is going to be left over <laughs> from the day before because they don't want to cook new food because it's Shabbat. They don't want to work. You don't want to get on a Shabbat elevator. Why? <laughs> I'm just saying. It stops at every floor. I've done this before. I learned the hard way. On Shabbat, it's like, which one's the Shabbat elevator? It's the one with the ultra-Orthodox Jews lined up to get on it. Okay, I'm getting on the Western one. You know, I can punch in the buttons. What are they worried about? They're, they're legalists. What are legalists worried about? All the wrong things. God gave man new eyes, and they're worried about, yeah, but he did it on Shabbat. You know, we need to do something with him. So talk about Jesus blew their, their paradigm away, and they didn't want to listen to him. So when Isaiah says, when the Messiah comes, the question is going to be, I mean, who believed our message about his power? Not many. Not many. Now, verse 2 is most interesting about his rejection. It says, uh, when he comes, it says, uh, he, he, he grew up. It's kind of like past tense. It's future it's going to be future, but it's as if it's already happened. He says, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, uh, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was not what we expected. He's not what we were looking for. That, that's what a Jewish person would say. So he prophesied that he would show up. He would, he would be unlike any man ever that you would pick to battle sin. I mean, if we constructed the perfect person to battle with sin, he'd probably look like uh, Captain America or something. Have you seen the movie? Don't get all quiet and it's like you don't go to the show. I mean, we would pick somebody, rippling muscles, you know, 6'4", maybe, 225, etc. 
you know, square jaw, you know, the whole, that whole thing. You know, God doesn't operate like that, does he? Now, he says when the Messiah comes, he's going to be like a tender shoot. Uh, this is why I love gardening, because I totally understand this. If you have a tender shoot that pops up in your yard, like I have right now, a whole bunch of little tender shoots coming up from bulbs I've planted, the last thing you want to do is what? Step on it. Because I did that the other day to one of my tender shoots. It's now not a tender shoot. Uh, it's a smashed shoot. You know, it says when he comes, he's going to be like a tender, tender shoot, physically speaking, meaning he's not going to be the muscle man like what you would think. Remember when they chose Saul, First uh, Samuel chapter 9, when they chose the first king, what were they looking for? Well, he, he's got to be tall. Check. He's, he's got to be good looking. Check. You know, he's got to be muscular. Check. I mean, he's got to be a man's man. Check. They picked him. Was he the right king? No, he was a terrible king. Uh, and we know from that whole episode that uh, man looks on the outside, don't they? They do not look at the quality of the person on the inside. So when they choose the, the next Davidic king, God chooses the king. And it's, it's a really interesting story because uh, the prophet goes over uh, you know, to uh, David's family's house and goes through all the brothers, the big strapping brothers. And the, Sam, you know, the prophet looks at you know, the dad and says, uh, are there no more? And he's like, well, there's, <laughs> David is out back. I mean, he's, he's out back tending sheep. Let me see him. So of all those young boys, who became the king? David. The least likely. He didn't look like it. So, so when the Messiah comes, he's not going to be like anything you would anticipate. And because he came in a way they didn't anticipate, they miscalculated who he was. Uh, it says he's going to be like a root out of parched ground. Uh, so a root coming out of fertile ground, positive sign, right? A root coming out of parched ground, that's eh, probably a tenuous root. It's probably not going to make it. So what is he saying? When you looked at Christ, well, he wasn't someone who caught your attention. If you saw Saul in a room, he, they looked at him because he was head and shoulders of everybody else, right? Jesus was not like that. He says uh, he had no stately form, uh, no majesty. He didn't look regal. Uh, that we should look upon him, his parents, that we should even be attracted to him. And you, you see how this goes. Man looks on the outside, don't they? I mean, if you're in the room with somebody that looks like a, uh, I know he's older now, Schwarzenegger in his prime, or, or a Lou Ferrigno or one of those kind of guys, when you see those kinds of people, they're like, whoa, maybe I, I, I could take him. <laughs> uh, the wife's telling you, uh, no, no. When you see somebody that's just a human specimen, you're thinking, whoa, they must be just the best. And, and when God looks down from heaven and says, no, I'm going to send my son to be the, the, the savior, uh, but he's not going to be like anything like you ever thought. He's not going to be rippling muscle, square jaw, 6'4", 225. He's not going to look like that. In fact, he kind of might look weakly. He might be in shape, but he's not what you anticipated. Um, have you ever miscalculated a person? <laughs> Isn't it the truth? I learned this hard, the hard way when I wrestled in high school. Because when you stepped up on the weight scale you know, before the match and you saw your opponent, that's when you did your psychops thing, you know? And it's like, oh, yeah, you're looking at your opponent. Uh, I learned very quickly if they were skinny, wiry, it was going to be really gnarly. <laughs> if they were rippling with muscle, you know, I was probably in better shape than they were. You cannot look on the outside. And God, God says, I'm going to send you the, the Messiah, and he's not going to look like anything like you ever anticipated. Have you ever miscalculated looking at a person? Have you ever miscalculated looking at Jesus? 
It says in verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. People fled from him when they saw what his life was all about. He was despised. People, people couldn't stand him. Think about this. He wasn't the most famous person in the room. And we did not esteem him. I mean, think people forsook him. Uh, think of the life that he lived. The, the rejection that he endured every single day took a toll on him. Because if people reject you constantly when you're trying to love on them, th this takes a toll on anybody. Matthew chapter 23, toward the end of his ministry, as he's looking at Jerusalem, he says these sad words. Verse 37 of Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How I, he says, I as the Messiah, all I ever wanted to do was gather you to, like children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Isn't that, that is just the saddest thing. He was, he was despised of man of sorrows. What was his sorrow? It's not that Jesus was a depressed individual. I mean, we read, and he, he had many opportunities of, of fun and enjoying people, but when he dealt with people and they constantly rejected him, he looks at them toward the end of his life and said, I just came to love on you like a mother hen would her chicks, and you, you would have none of me. That caused people to remove them, themselves from them. Think about when Jesus healed the, the ten lepers. You would think if you were covered with leprosy and crying out to a man that, as he passed by that you thought might be able to help you because you've heard stories of his healing powers and he gave you instantly brand new skin, you would think you would do what? Thank him. Thank him. I don't know if you've ever held the doors for people. How many times when they go past you do you stop and say, you're welcome because they continue to move past you. You know, the 10, the ten lepers uh, ran into Christ, screamed for help. He instantly healed them. How many of the 10 came back? One. One man turned back and said, thank you, Lord. He knew who he was. Uh, why, didn't they, why didn't they thank him? Uh, arrogant, prideful. You thought it was due to them. And they didn't recognize who he was because they miscalculated him. So if you have, to, you have to ask yourself, are you guilty of rejecting Jesus Christ? I can, I've heard all the reasons why you would. Uh, I don't believe in a divine being. Uh, I think man is basically good and society makes him evil. I'm not convinced Jesus was the Messiah because that's so intolerant all other religions. So why would I want to do that? Uh, I, I really do enjoy my sinful lifestyle and I don't want anyone like Jesus to mess with it. I had a guy tell me that one day. Uh, I'm afraid of what my wife or husband would think if I ever embraced faith in Jesus. I had another lady tell me that one day. Uh, I don't think God could or would ever have a son. That's impossible. And on and on go the excuses. It was prophesied that, uh, well, he would experience uh, all the things just prophesied that would cause us to reject him. Are you rejecting him? And I have to ask you a simple question. Will the reasons why you reject him right now suffice in eternity when you're not with him? I think not. Uh, next, what does the servant do? Well, he atones for our sins. That's verses four to six. Talks about the atonement. What does atonement mean? Uh, here is Baker, and this is not my book, Baker's Encyclopedia uh, of the Bible says this. The Hebrew term frequently translated atone has the basic meaning of to wipe out, to erase, to cover, or perhaps generally to remove something. Uh, when I was in college, I was a, I was a janitor for Zeusa Pacific University, and I was also a gardener for the school, you know, to make money and survive. 
So in the evenings, I'd go up and I'd clean, clean all the art rooms. And I also was a janitor at a high school uh, overlooking the San Fernando Valley. So I, I had to clean all the classrooms of the high school students. So I had a special, you know, giant uh, uh, eraser that I would use to clean all the chalkboards from the daily activities. So whatever was written on there, when I was done, it, they were all clean by the next morning. I often thought in the evenings when I would be up there, this is like my sin, that one day my life, which was the boards of my life were covered. One day I recognized who that servant was that I had rejected. And the day I accepted him, well, what did he do? Well, he atoned for my sin. He just wiped it all away. And then he gave me his holiness. That's atonement. Uh, atonement happens based on God's terms, and his atonement is done by blood sacrifice. Uh, you do not find uh, the word uh, here in this particular passage uh, where it talks about atonement in, uh, in that kind of terminology. But you see uh, atonement uh, activity when you read the entire chapter. So look at verse 4. When you'll see the atonement language uh, where he's going to die in behalf of our sin. He's going to cover our sin and wipe it away. That's why he came. Notice, uh, place heavy emphasis on the word our. Surely our griefs he himself bore, meaning he didn't bear his griefs, he bore ours. Uh, our sorrows he carried. We, yet we ourselves uh, made a miscalculation. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We assumed that whatever was happened to him, he must have earned that. Uh, it goes on to say, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, not his. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by our scourging we, uh, we are healed. All of us like sheep have, what? Gone astray. That's what sheep do. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You cannot read that chapter and not understand atonement. Atonement. Blood sacrifice by the proper sacrifice, the Son of God, the God-man. And he came to die for our iniquity, our sin, and it was all placed on him. Uh, the word, uh, words in verse 4 where it says he bore our griefs uh, and he carried, uh, he carried our sorrows. Those exact Hebrew words are the same words used in Leviticus 16 for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Same words. What happens on Yom Kippur? Um, they got two goats. And the one goat, they confessed the sins of the nation over. They then slaughtered that goat and that blood sacrificed by that goat covered the sins of the nation. The other goat that the sins were placed on was sent out into the wilderness to show that, it, that well, their, their sin had been removed. So the same terminology, same, same Hebrew words are used in Isaiah 53. Even though it doesn't say atonement, Jesus is showing through the fulfillment of this that, yes, I am Yom Kippur. I am the ultimate atonement. So you have to ask yourself, has he covered my sin? Has he erased my sin? How does that happen? I come to him in faith and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. You are the servant that was rejected by me. I'm now not going to reject you. I'm going to embrace you. The moment you do that, he looks down from heaven and, and wipes your life clean. There is no greater day in your life when that happens. He was pierced for our sin. Uh, some assume that, uh, uh, that the terminology means here that he died to remove us from all of our sicknesses. That is not what the passage is saying. Parallelistically, he's, uh, the, uh, the whole concept of dying to make us healed is all related to iniquity. He's not talking about physical sickness. He's talking about spiritual sickness. He died to remove your spiritual sickness, but you must come to him on his terms and trust that he's the Savior that can do it. There's an old, uh, there's an old hymn. 
uh, that tells us why he did it. Why, why did he do it? Why did he leave the glory of heaven to be rejected, to be my atonement? Why did he do that? One word, love. He did it because he loved you. There's an old hymn that goes like this. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men. My example is he. The word became flesh and the light shined among us. His glory was revealed to me. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sin far away. You have to ask yourself, if you have not come to him in faith, you still have your sin. It's not atoned for. It's not covered. It's not erased. It's not wiped out. The only way to get it erased and wiped out was to come to him and say, you love me enough to die in my place as the perfect Yom Kippur sacrifice. I embrace you today in faith. And he gives you a new life of forgiveness and holiness. The last thing he says about the servant uh, in verses 7 to 9 that we'll look at today is what I would call the submission of the servant, meaning he was going to submit to the Father's will and do it no matter what. You would think if you're going to be unjustly accused by your peers, imprisoned, beaten, tortured on trumped-up charges, you would utter a defense that you would hire the best attorneys you could possibly pay for to defend you because you are, you're, you're not guilty. But notice what is prophesied about the submission of the servant. It says in verse 7, He, the servant, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shears. He didn't open his mouth. You would, when you look at Christ and ask yourself, okay, when he was crucified as the servant, did he fulfill this? Yes. He fulfilled it to the letter. Uh, when they took him to Herod, notice what it says in Luke 23, when they took him to Herod for his uh, trumped-up trial. Uh, now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, uh, for he uh, wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him, and he was hoping to see some sign performed by him. You know, come do some tricks for me. I'm Herod. I'm the ultimate Jewish king. Um, well, how'd that go? Keep reading. He questioned him at some length, and what did Jesus do? You are not worth talking to. I will not put pearls before swine. You see, the Lord looks at Herod and thinks, you think you're the king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. But before I can become the king, I have to become the sacrifice. And to become the sacrifice, I have to be the servant. I will not articulate a discussion with you that will throw me off my holy quest. When you read uh, through the other trials that Jesus went to, when he appears for Pilate in the third phase of his Roman trial. Uh, he appears uh, before Pilate the last time. The first time he appeared before Pilate, he does speak to Pilate. But the last time he appears before Pilate, before Pilate crucifies him, you will read the passages. I put them all in my notes. You can read them tomorrow online. Every single passage where he, in the Gospels where it says he appeared before Pilate the last time, he said nothing to Pilate. Nothing. Total silence. What was the silence saying? You're condemned. You are condemned. But you're, I'm not going to debate you about my mission because nothing's going to pull me off my vision. It was prophesied that I would be silent when you would unjustly accuse me and oppress me, and I would go to the cross like a lamb does to slaughter. I did a little reading this week and found out I don't know a bunch about sheep. I do things about gardening, sheep and animals, not my thing. But I did find out when you shear a sheep, uh, you can take cutters and cut into their, accidentally cut their flesh, they won't make a noise. They're totally silent. And that if you put them in a chute to lead them to slaughter, they, they can collectively go in and see what's happening. There's no noise. 
So it's prophesied when the ultimate sheep, the ultimate lamb of God, goes to bear our sin, that he would not scream, injustice! No. He would say, no, this is just. I'll bear your sin. And I'll quietly go to the cross for you. And I, and I will die there so that when I rise again, I can defeat your sin. It says in verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And these are harsh terms in the Hebrew text, meaning he's like snatched. This is a great description of, the, of, the, of what happened uh, in the garden uh, uh, when they arrested him. As for his generation, another question was, who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people for whom the stroke was due? Uh, the word cut off in Hebrew uh, just means uh, to kill, murder. I mean, they, like who considered that when they arrested him, that, uh, you know, that he was, he was going to be killed for all of our sins. Who even connected the dots? Well, not many, not many. Is that what happened to Jesus? Yes, exactly. When he was arrested, hauled away, not many were thinking, well, he's, he's going to the cross to die for our sins. No, they weren't looking at it that way at all. They were just looking to get rid of him. Verse 9, it says, uh, prophetically, his grave was assigned with wicked man, yet he was a rich man in his death because he had no done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. It was prophesied that he would die with wicked men. Did he? Yeah, he did. How many? Two. One on his left, one on the right. One of those wicked men became a holy man. Why? Because he looked at Christ and he, well, you know the statement he made. He realized who he was and he said, Lord, Will you remember me? That faith statement. Will you remember me? What Jesus tell him? I'll remember you. Better than that, he said, I'm going to tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Paradidos in Greek means trees. In the wonder and the glory of, of the garden of heaven. You're going to be on this hill dying today, but you're going to wake up in glory here in a few minutes. See, was it prophesied he would, he would die with a wicked man? Yes. Did he? Yes. But they took him down from the cross, uh, and they said, but he would be buried, even though he was a pauper, well, with a rich man. Was he? Yes. I've, I've been to, the, I've been to the, the, the site. Yes, he was. His name? Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was another Jew who came to know Christ because he connected the dots and saw the evidence. And so uh, he provided that tomb for Jesus to be buried in. I think I have a picture of it. Uh, that's a picture of our tour group going into the tomb of Christ. Uh, the giant stone would have been rolled on a track uh, that's down in front of the lady in green in front of her feet. She's walking across that. When you walk inside, it opens up into, uh, there's a, uh, they, they carved uh, into the stone places for the body to be laid. So when you walk in on the left-hand side is a place to lay a body in front of you. Uh, you turn, and then there's a, a other places to lay bodies, and they theorize his body was laid in, right inside where those stones have been mortared in there. Uh, they theorize Jesus' body was laid in there because uh, when you look at it, they carved into the stone a little bit longer because he was tall, taller. And so they theorized because he was taller, they had to increase the length of the, of the, of the, of the area to house his body. This is where they laid him. It was prophesied that he would be buried in the, uh, the, in the, in the, in the, of a tomb of a very wealthy man. Could he control this? No. These are things he cannot control. None of these things he can control. In fact, of all the things prophesied here, uh, 
if there were 60 exact prophecies that Christ fulfilled from the Old Testament, exact, very specific, tribe he would be born to, city he'd be born in, things like that. Uh, if you took 48 of those prophecies, not 60, just 48 of them, because a mathematician has done it, he, his analysis is the probability that one man could fulfill these things that he could not control is 10 to the 157th power. Meaning, who was he? Mathematically speaking, well, he had to be the Christ because the odds are completely against any man doing any of that. He, he was who he said he was. Why did he do this? Well, living, he loved me. That's dying, he what? Saved me, buried, he carried your sins far away. So you have to ask yourself, has he done that for me yet today? He came down so you can go up. I would pretty much ask you, what are you waiting for? Because he gave you all the evidence you need to know you need to come to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for leaving the glory of heaven. Uh, knowing what Isaiah prophesied uh, 800 years before you arrived in 5 BC, uh, knowing that your ministry would be a difficult one, uh, that you would uh, be rejected by the people by and large, uh, they would hate you at the end, crucify you. But you know that you did this uh, all for love, and you did it because you loved us, and you stayed on the cross because you loved us, and you did this to carry our sin, not your sin, so that you could defeat sin, so that we would have the possibility to have a relationship with you. Who wouldn't want that? Thank you for being a forgiving God and for God that gives a new life, a fresh start, and life that goes into eternity. We thank you for that. For those who don't know you, might this be their spiritual birthday when they embrace you as the Messiah. And those of you that walk with the Christ, might this be the day that you turn around, unlike the other nine lepers, and you tell them thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.